Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of In the Loop, a podcast by Texas Guadalupe. We are the University of Texas Hyperloop team. I'm one of your co-hosts, Gavin Nader, and I'm the head of business, and I'm also a senior studying economics here at UT. I'm your other co-host, David Spittler. I'm the head of Texas Guadalupe and currently pursuing my master's in mechanical engineering at UT. Uh, and today we have a very special episode. We are joined by a friend of the team and an internet legend, Dr. Metcalf. Dr. Metcalf is credited with inventing and commercializing Ethernet, which forever changed how, commu- how computers communicate with each other. Dr. Metcalf then went on to start multiple companies and in 2005 received the United States National Medal of Technology. Uh, Metcalf is now a professor of innovation here at UT, helping the next generation make an impact. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing well. Thank you. Awesome. Would you, were uh, you looking for a longer answer to that question? No, that's perfect. No. <laughs> we are talking over the internet, which uh, I've been working on for 50 years, and I apologize in advance if it goes out. I'm sitting out here in Marfa, Texas, and there's nothing else here except uh, this. Uh, I'm on a, a cell phone version of the internet here. Anyway, I apologize in advance if it drops a few packets. All good. I make sure I'm not dropping because I'm actually plugged in via Ethernet right now. So I'm hardwired in. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, to start, um, we kind of just want to go through your earlier, your adolescent years and your life in Brooklyn and kind of how you got interested in engineering. Well, I was born in Brooklyn, 1946. My father was a, uh, he never went to college. He was a technician, a test technician on uh, gyroscopes and he had a little shop in the basement of whatever house we were living in. And we, he helped me build a model train set on a big four by eight piece of plywood, which we painted green. And then he brought home from work some relays and switches and neon lights to do the control for the trains, which we then built. And then by a certain chain of events, my eighth grade science teacher said, why don't you take all that relays and lights and switches and build a computer? So in 1959, I built a computer. Now, it was what my eighth grade teacher called a computer. It uh, it didn't have much computational capability. It could add any number between one and three, like one, two, or three, to any other number between one and three, one, two, and three, and reflect the answer by turning on the appropriate light between two, three, four, five, and six. So I built this computer with soldering irons and stuff, and I got a grade. I got a grade, you asked how I got into engineering. Once I got the A triple plus H superior grade on this project, I I decided maybe I should be an engineer. (laughs) Yes, and I know that there's a story about how you had to do a book report in the fourth grade. And that kind of on your path. Yeah, my, uh, well, in short form, as I remember it, remember this is a long time ago, and I, I sometimes I'm afraid I make stuff up, but mm-hmm. uh, my recollection is I had a book report due in fourth grade, and of course I left it to the last moment, ran down to my father's shop, found some books on the shelf, and there was a book by these two MIT professors on electrical engineering. So I wrote my book report on that book. Of course, I stood no chance of understanding a word of the book, uh, but I pretended to have read it and wrote a book report you know, this book had high points and it had low points, but on the average, it was an average book. And then I ended the book report by saying, and someday I plan to go to MIT and get a degree in electrical engineering. That was sort of a 
sop sentence to my teacher. And uh, of course, later I did go to MIT and get a degree in electrical engineering. Yeah, I think we've all written book reports similar to that. <laughs> um, so, so, go ahead. Yeah, so going to MIT, uh, was your original plan, uh, obviously the electrical and industrial management, or how did that uh, degree course come about? Well, my, I went to MIT intending to be an architect. In fact, I chose MIT because it had the first, well, uh, it's a stellar school, but it also had the first architecture department in the United States. But the first assignment, the first week of MIT freshman year in my architecture class, 401, I think it was, was draw your own hand. And I could draw buildings and and uh, beams and uh, I could write with mechanical pencil, but I could not for the life of me draw my hand. So I immediately dropped the course and switched to uh, mathematics. And I was there for a year. And then I switched to uh, management. And then finally, I added on electrical engineering uh, over a five, my five-year career as a student at MIT. So why was it having originally saying in the fourth grade, oh, I want to be an electrical engineer at MIT? What kind of switched between then and then actually entering MIT as an architecture student originally? Um, I... I I got it. I, my recollection is I got admitted to MIT my junior, following my junior year of high school, but I was advised by everyone not to go, but to finish out high school, which I did. But, but since I had taken all the courses by then, uh, I took mechanical drawing and typing, just to name two. And the typing course really came in handy because I've been typing ever since. <laughs> and, and the mechanical drawing I took a full year of mechanical drawing and I learned about perspective and protractors and rulers and printing. So to this day, I print in a style reminiscent of mechanical drawing. I don't write in, I never, I dropped script writing that year. So it was, I think in the course of taking the mechanical drawing and, uh, and, um, uh, that, that I sw uh, became an architect, but I, the thing I liked about architecture, it was a combination of engineering and art. And I liked that combination. So in that time, was that during your last years of college, was that when ARPANET was become a thing? Was there talk of like the internet as you're graduating? No, I didn't hear about the ARPANET. Well, I heard about the ARPANET, uh, when I graduated from MIT in 1969 and I went up the river, I had decided to go to graduate school at Harvard, a big mistake, but I decided to do it. And at Harvard and many other universities, ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the Department of Defense, was sponsoring the building out of a network to connect all of its resources. And it was called ARPANET. So I decided to do my PhD on some aspect of ARPANET and I had just finished graduating from MIT in electrical engineering where I had learned the latest in digital electronics, which by the way, digital was controversial in 1969. There were still a bunch of analog computers hanging around. Uh, they're mostly gone now. Well, actually they're coming back, it's called quantum. But uh, uh, so anyway, I knew about digital. So I said to Harvard, why don't I build the connection to connect Harvard into the ARPANET? And Harvard said, oh, no, that's way too important a project for a student. 
<laughs> so I turned around. <laughs> I learned then that uh, Harvard didn't really like engineers all that much. It preferred scientists and English majors. And I was an engineer, which was neither of those. So I went down the, back down um, Broadway to the other end of Cambridge, Mass. And I got a job at MIT. And, and they paid me as a member of the research staff to build a connection between MIT and the ARPANET. And then I offered to make a copy of my hardware and give it to Harvard. And MIT agreed to let me do that. And Harvard would not accept my gift of uh, the, uh, the IMP interface between the ARPANET and uh, Harvard or MIT. So I, I, um, I made ARPANET my PhD topic, but I did what work I did, I did at MIT. This is, don't ever do this. Don't ever work at one university, MIT, and expect to easily get a degree at another university, Harvard. Uh, so I, I am one of the few people you've ever met who failed his oral thesis defense for the PhD and uh, at Harvard. And of course, the reason I failed is I hadn't done any work at Harvard. I had done all my work at MIT. But eventually I wrenched my uh, PhD away from Harvard and uh, went to work, uh, well, continued working at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Why do you think there was so much resistance from Harvard? Oh, it's really not Harvard's fault. You, you can't expect a group of people who you've hardly ever met to decide that your work is original and worthy of a Harvard PhD. You really can't expect them to approve that on the first meeting. And I'd say half the committee I'd never met before the meeting. So even though I blame it on Harvard 50 years later, it's probably not, you know, it probably wasn't Harvard's fault. But anyway, I've, I've, I've uh, for 50 years carried this grudge against Harvard. Maybe I should drop it now. Maybe it's time to let go. What do you think? <laughs> let bygones be, be bygones. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, good to be twisted by thoughts of revenge. Anyway, Harvard to this day doesn't like engineering. They created a, a school of which I'm a retroactive alum called the School of Engineering and Applied Physics, Applied Science. They couldn't call it the School of Engineering. They had to call it the School of Engineering and Applied Science. They had to have the word science in the name of the school because they don't really like engineers all that much. And um, I'm an engineer. I'm, I also believe that the, the distinction between scientists and engineers is a false dichotomy. Because in my experience, the best engineers are also scientists, and the best scientists are also engineers, in my experience. And so that division between the schools, like at UT, there's a school of science and a school of engineering, and that, those are the pejorative term for that is they're silos. They put people in silos. And what uh, I think there's general agreement that silos are not a good thing, that we really want people to uh, uh, learn uh, more broad, more broadly. So if it were up to you, would you have both of those schools be under one continuous branch at UT? Uh, probably. You know, the University of Arizona, not University, Arizona State is really leading the way in educational uh, reform. And it's uh, Mr. Crow, their uh, president. One of the first things he did when he arrived at Arizona State was to eliminate all the departments of engineering. So there were still professors of engineering, but there was not a you weren't a professor of electrical engineering, you were a professor of engineering. So he immediately erased all the silos within the School of Engineering. So you could imagine similar erasure more broadly 
across science and engineering, and why not business too, uh, and so on. Why not? Why are these these silos are rigid, and they are uh, they are uh, a negative force for uh, innovation and the advancement of science because they put people in silos where they can't they can't leverage what's going on around them as much as would be healthy. Oh, Gavin, is your Uh oh. I'd be having a little bit of technical difficulties. It was only a matter of time. It was bound to happen. It was bound to happen, especially since I'm talking to you on a cell phone via Marfa, <laughs> Texas. For those of you who don't know where Marfa, Texas is, if you start in Austin and head west, when you arrive in um, the Marfa, El Paso area, you are halfway to San Diego. Uh, so we're three from uh, El Paso here and we're seven hours from Austin and it is God's country out here it is just lots of open desert and we're in this little art there's this little art colony called Marfa where we're staying for a month while our our house is being uh, renovated and uh, but thanks to zoom and the internet which carries it uh, I'm able to participate in the activities of the University of Texas from Marfa. And my course, I have a new course starting tomorrow tomorrow afternoon, and I'm going to start that course from Marfa, Texas, with uh, 18 students. And I don't know where the 18 students are. <laughs> they may not be, be in Austin like I picture them. I picture them sitting in a classroom in Austin. But they're probably in there. Maybe they're all in Marfa, too. I should go down to the coffee shop later and check. Maybe. I was actually, I was reading one of your uh, AMAs, I believe it was from six years ago, uh, recently, and one of your predictions was asked, asked you, let me pull it up real quick. Oh, no, Someone you're not asked, my predictions. <laughs> this is a good one. This is a good one. Humanity, no. uh, except with the exception of Ethernet and asteroid mining, what technology do you most eagerly await? Uh, well, in spades, and, uh, but it was helpful by COVID. It is the silver lining, of, if there is a silver lining, but the silver lining of COVID is the uh, forced experiment to put everything online. We've been moving slowly, well, at various speeds toward being entirely online, but we've had all sorts of excuses about why we couldn't do it. You could never teach a course online, blah, 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 or you could never run a design engineering meeting online. You need face-to-face, -face, you know, contact well that experiment thanks to covid not that it deserves any thanks uh we have just performed that experiment and guess what we found we found that you can teach courses uh remotely and you can run engineering you can have companies without offices and that experiment now having been performed we're not going back uh, we'll go a little bit back but we're not going to go all the way back to the way it was thanks to covid we've advanced by the way, is that barking dog uh, too much traction? It's not too bad. I can kind of hear it. Uh, I think my mic can you can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, we're back. Um, have you found it like any more difficult to teach remotely, or are you kind of adapting well? Uh, well, I haven't really started. Uh, I mean, I've been zooming for the last year. Yeah. I've, my family, uh, we, we migrated to Tiburon, California uh, three months ago, 
to be with our, our kids live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we went and camped out there using Zoom to conduct our business. So I've been Zooming steadily now for since the beginning of COVID. But tomorrow afternoon, I actually start an actual course, a, an entirely online course. And then maybe after that, I'll be better a- able to answer your question. Okay. Um, that kind of brings me, we're kind of going all over the place, but that kind of brings me to my question of how did you get involved with UT and what made you want to become a professor? Well, I've been uh, in the innovation business my whole career, first as an engineer and scientist and then as an entrepreneur and then as a, a columnist, venture capitalist. So, I, so I've changed careers five times. Uh, and each was a 10-year career. So that give you do arithmetic, you figure out how old I am. So the, the, uh, it was time. I had been a venture capitalist for 10 years. It was time to move on to something else. And plus, my wife is a super jock. She's a triathlete, ultra triathlete. And she got tired of the Boston winters because she works out every day. So she wanted to go to a warm place, and I wanted to go someplace else. So we we looked around and I pitched a bunch of deans of engineering on having a professor of innovation. My motivation was to go meta, was to go up a level. I had by going to venture capital, I was up up a level over entrepreneur. I'd gone meta, and that worked out really well. So I thought I'd go meta again. I think I, maybe I've overdone it, but so being a professor of innovation or entrepreneurship, I'm both. Uh, that's going meta again. Uh, I think my next career, I will probably un- go unmeta. Um, you know, there are different kinds of of uh, satisfaction at uh, different levels of meta, and I'm I'm kind of missing the team. Pref- relatively speaking, uh, being on a company team is just really energizing and um, fulfilling. And a venture capitalist dances from one company to the next, so there's less not none but less of a uh, a team orientation um so the answer is i wanted to i wanted to go meta and by the way i've always been associated with university i was a professor at stanford for eight years uh part half time i taught a course i taught the initial course on distributed computing at stanford university starting in 1975 and, and um, taught distributed computing for eight years there so I've been around and I've been, I'm an MIT, uh, I've worked at MIT, I've been a student at MIT, I'm now a life emeritus trustee of MIT. So I've been around university, so becoming a professor was something that uh, was, I had been a professor before. Um, so I wanted to profess entrepreneurship, plus the University of Texas gave me a, an endowed chair in free enterprise, which is one of my favorite subjects. Uh, so I'm, I am the fellow of free enterprise of the uh, University of Texas and proud of it. Nice. Yeah, I think in one of your AMAs too, you said that like something that you like about the internet most is that it reduces market friction. Um, is that something that you were thinking of from the beginning? Well, I'll be careful. That's a dangerous question. That's an invitation for me to re- <laughs> remember history in a way that's <laughs> makes me sound visionary. Uh, uh, so I, since 1969, I joined the internet in January 1970. 
the first internet packets were switched in Oct on October 29th, 1969. So I was a couple months late. Uh, to, that was at UCLA, by the way, in October 29th, 1969, the first uh, remote login was attempted. By the way, it was unsuccessful, but it was at least attempted. And uh, a few months later, we had remote login through the internet running. And that seemed to be the principal, that was the, supposed to be the use of the internet was remote login. But that, of course, the, tel, the Telnet protocol, as it was, as it's, I believe it's still called, for remote login, uh, that didn't last as the internet's principal use. Very quickly, it went to uh, email. Mm -hmm. So email became for 20 years the killer app of the internet. And now it's, uh, many, and now it's uh, what is it, Facebook or, or Google or Instagram. Google? Yeah, Twitter. <clears throat> yeah, so I designed yeah. the history of the internet into three phases. Phase one is the, uh, uh, the time-sharing phase where the, the uh, internet interconnected time-sharing mini-computers with dumb terminals. That was phase one. And that was the ARPANET I joined in, in 70. And then in the 80s came personal computers with local area networks. And then the internet came, became the method of interconnecting your PC LANs in your home or your office or wherever. And then the World Wide Web got invented in 1989 and started growing wildly in 1994. And that's the third phase, the World Wide Web phase. You could argue there's, we've entered yet another phase. Yeah, I'm going to argue now there's a fourth phase, which is the mobile the mobile phase, the uh, intelligent phone phase, which is, so we started out uh, networking dumb terminals and now we're networking uh, iPhones or uh, smart. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, from my understanding, like at Xerox, the original use for the internet was just to be able to print. Is that like kind of right? Well, yes. We were building what is arguably the first PC, but also the first laser printer. And the laser printer was a page per second, eight and a half by 11, 500 dots per inch. Do the math, that's 20 bits per second or more. So the existing networking schemes, the principal one being a thing called RS-232, uh, they ran at 300 baud or 4,800 baud, 1,200 baud, a baud being a, nowadays a bit per second. Uh, we needed 20 megabits per second. So the, that digital, that laser printer was a driving uh, requirement that the network be fast. So the first ethernet we built was 2.94 megabits per second. And I'll save you the math. That was a increase of bandwidth to my desk from 300 baud to 2.94 megabits per second, an increase of not 10%. Not a hundred percent, not factor of ten, not a factor of a hundred, not a factor of a thousand, but an increase of ten thousand times the uh, bandwidth, and uh, that. Crazy. And of course, the goal keep the printer busy. I mean, you needed to have a fast network, or the printer would just sit there idle all the time, waiting for documents to download. So the only way you could print on this glorious printer was to send them, was to FTP another app of the internet was to FTP the, the, your documents to the printer whereupon it would print them. And it did this at uh, 2.94 megabits per second peak. It's funny too. I've read that 
um, like journalists and reporters kept wanting to round it to three megabits per second. You're like, you can't do that because it's 2.94 because just that rounding was like way faster than anything else at the time. And the rounding was faster than the internet by a long shot. So, we, <laughs> so I always say 2.94. I never say three megabits per second. Oh. Yeah. Did you believe it at that time when you saw that 10,000 times faster? Well, of course I believe that we, but what's interesting is how we arrived at that speed, 2.94 megabits per second. What an odd, what an unusual number. And yeah. uh, it was determined by the size of the card on which the electronics had to fit mm. the plug card into the first PC. This, the, the Alto, A-L-T-O, the uh, short for Palo Alto, the Alto PC had a card that option slots for cards to go in. So Dave Boggs and I, the designers of the first Ethernet, uh, we had to squeeze everything onto that card so that the card could then plug into the PC. And as we finished designing the card, uh, we needed to put a clock on it to clock the packets out of the computer, out onto the cable to send it around the building. We had to clock it out. We needed a clock. And so the normal method would be to put, take a crystal and put the crystal on the card and it would be the clock that would clock the bits out. But we didn't have any room. There was no room left on the card for this crystal assembly. But we noticed that the back plane of the PC had a clock, the system clock that clocked the entire PC. So we decided to use the system clock as our packet clock. And we had chosen to use what's called Manchester encoding, which is, you know, half a, half a bit per baud, uh, the clocking mechanism. So the system clock ticked every 170 nanoseconds, and it took two ticks to put a bit out on the cable. So that's 340 nanoseconds. And if you take 340 nanoseconds per bit and you invert it, you get 2.94 megabits per second. Mm. So the speed of the internet, astronomically fast in those days, was determined by the size of the option card uh, and the speed of the system clock rather than any round number. You know, you generally, when you build a network, you choose a round number like 10 or 100. No, no, 2.94 because that's all we could fit. And our, and our motto, which persists today as part of the Ethernet, the meaning of the word Ethernet, is build it and they will come. That is, we, we hardly had any requirements, perhaps the printer, for running that fast. But we just built it as, we built it as fast as we could, given the available semiconductors. In those days, the semiconductors were not, well, they, we called them MSI, medium scale integration. Each chip, I remember the 7404 chip had two flip-flops on it. And then there was another chip that had six inverters on it. And with that level of integration, we couldn't squeeze a faster network onto the card. So the speed of Ethernet has traditionally been determined by the availability of semiconductors uh, that will run at that speed. And so now we're, uh, now the uh, Ethernet community is about to do 400 gigabits per second because the chip is now available to run at 400 gigabits per second. Wow. That's just mind-boggling. Yeah, you're maxing. I feel out. like a question. 
Yeah, I feel like a traditional question when talking about the Ethernet is why is it called the Ethernet? It seems that a lot of people are kind of want to know the the reasoning behind the name. Well, the um, we chose to put the first Ethernet on a, a half inch coaxial cable. So imagine a a half inch, a mile long half inch coaxial cable running down the center of every corridor, and then the model was to put the packets on that cable. In, you know, up onto the network. And we chose coax, but we realized that this, this design we were doing could use any medium. It could use coax, and we had a reason for choosing coax that in those days, but it could also be twisted pair. It could be a twin axe. It could be radio. It could be optical fibers. So, so we didn't want to call the network coax net because that would be too limiting. So we tried to think of a word that was a uh, generic for omnipresent medium for the propagation of electromagnetic waves. And in physics, there had been such a theory. It's called the, eth the luminiferous ether. And the physicists thought that the luminiferous ether carried the light from the sun to the earth as a medium of propagation. But when they went to find the ether, they couldn't find it. So the light gets from the sun to the earth without a medium. So the term luminiferous ether, light-bearing ether, uh, fell into disuse. So we picked it up, and we decided to use the word ether to mean an omnipresent passive medium for the propagation of electromagnetic waves. And so we built Ethernet, the network for doing that. And that's where the name uh, Ethernet came from. And at what point of making did you realize this is way, this is huge, this is going to change just the way we do a lot of things? Oh, I'd like to say almost at no point did that realization occur, or it occurred in such small steps that you hardly noticed. But we went, you know, that Ethernet ran in uh, first sent packets in November of 73. It was standardized roughly in 19... 82, uh, the, uh, it started driving very rapid growth in the, in the 80s. And my own company, the company I started to commercialize, it started growing wildly in the early 80s. Uh, and then Ethernet finally killed off its competition in the 90s. It had some competition from IBM and General Motors and others. And we killed them off in the 90s. So you see things take decades it wasn't accomplished in a, a day or a week or even a weekend, even an entire week. At MIT, they teach you if there's a week, if you have a weekend, you can do anything. Uh, but we, uh, it took decades, not weekends, in order for Ethernet to propagate and, and evolve. So today's Ethernet bears a scant resemblance to the Ethernet that Dave Boggs and I built in 1973. It's, it's uh, completely different today, but it's still called Ethernet. Every time a new technology is, announced, is uh, developed to make networking faster, the, the marketing guys call it Ethernet again. So th that's one of the ways in which Ethernet has propagated. It's just been very flexible uh, as to what it's describing. Anyway, Ethernet is a promise. It's a, you know, open, cheap, very fast communication among packet-oriented devices, mainly the Internet. So, uh, so rather than the original design specs of that original Ethernet in 73, today's Ethernet is really quite different. 
but that idea of a very high speed packet plumbing for the internet has persisted these 50 years. For, I should say 47 years. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you like, every time you hear ethernet or you sit down to use a computer, like what kind of, like do you ever think about just like your involvement in that every time you, you do that or, or hear those, those words? Well, yes, I've been taking pride in that for some time. But you remember, success has many fathers and mothers. And uh, I have to be a little bit careful because there's hundreds, now that it's been 47 years, hundreds of people have reinvented Ethernet. In fact, Wi-Fi is wireless Ethernet. They changed its name in 1999 from wireless Ethernet to Wi-Fi. Uh, and, and I... In the original invention memo for Ethernet, I show a picture of a wireless Ethernet called the uh, uh, Radio Ether, and, and it's in the right-hand corner of my little diagram. And it's that's my claim for having invented Wi-Fi in 1973. And that just annoys the hell out of the hundred people who actually did invent Wi-Fi. Yeah. Uh, it's just a little tweak. Anyway, I have to be careful because the management of credit is an important part of innovation. Mm -hmm. And if you get piggy and try to take too much credit, well, then you lose support and your innovation may die. If you take li too little credit, uh, then the resources that flow to success may be diverted to less successful ventures by not properly understanding what's working and what's not. So I pay attention to credit uh, carefully. Um, but anyway, I occasionally claim to have invented Wi-Fi. So there's a sore point. Yeah, people today often use, and I think you did a few minutes ago, use Ethernet to mean the cable thing and Wi-Fi to be the alternative. That is not how I think about it. I think about our original choice of the word Ether for multiple media and the fact that we anticipated radio uh, and then it became wireless Ethernet. Now, why did we not use radio at the beginning in 1973 and save decades of wires? I mean, we have buildings out there that are held up by Ethernet cables. Why all the cabling? The answer is that in 1973, a radio modem was as big as a personal computer. And they ran at 4,000 bits per second, 4,800 baud, as we used to call it. Uh, we couldn't use radio in, in 1973. We had to wait 25 years for the semiconductors to come along that made wireless ethernet possible. Uh, and, so, and so people have come, some people, those who are not into nuances, uh, uh, that ethernet is the cable version and Wi-Fi is the wireless version. But Wi-Fi wi is wireless ethernet in my model. And, of course, that annoys the 100 people who invented Wi-Fi, but, you know, they need someone to annoy them. That's my job, is to annoy people. It's a fun job to have. Yeah. <laughs> well, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier uh, about, obviously, creating a company and, you know, kind of taking the Ethernet with that. What would you is when you realized that you wanted to make a separate company with this technology and what was kind of the process like that of, you know, becoming an entrepreneur and some of the struggles you might've had with that? Well, I, I started three companies 
at MIT, three consulting companies. And MIT was in, when I was there, uh, was Silicon Valley. There was no Silicon Valley quite yet. Silicon Valley, now th this is a joke. This is a joke, so I pay attention. In 1972, I moved from the Boston area to Palo Alto from what was called Route 128, which was the Silicon Valley of its day, to Palo Alto, which was then beginning to become Silicon Valley. So I like to think that I led Silicon Valley from Boston to Palo Alto, that, the same year that I moved. But you see, I was lucky to be in both places, which are uh, steeped in startup culture. So it, it was role models everywhere and examples everywhere. Uh, so as I said, I had to, I named, uh, named and started three little consulting companies before I got to Palo Alto. And then I spent eight years at Xerox, but I was surrounded by Bill and Dave, the Hewlett Packard founders and Steve Jobs and uh, was all there. So it was pretty natural that after eight years at Xerox, I probably should start my own company. Uh, and I wasn't 19 years old. I wasn't dropping out of Harvard like uh, Gates had done. I was, uh, I, <laughs> I was 33 years old when I started 3Com. But I started it, be it was a natural thing be uh, because everyone in Silicon Valley thought about starting companies. It's a sort of an automatic thing. Austin is becoming that way. Well, ha you know, has become that way. Uh, there is a lot of uh, entrepreneurship around, many role models around. So it's easy to get the idea that that's something you might want to do. And my job at, at uh, UT Austin is, which I've been doing for 10 years now, is helping people have that idea and helping them to turn it into a startup if it's appropriate for a startup. And uh, so that's how I got into it. So when I left Xerox in 1979, my resignation, I gave them seven months notice. And in, in my resignation letter, I said, I, I'm leaving to pursue entrepreneurial ambitions. I did not have a company in mind. I just, it was time for me to pursue entrepreneurship. And uh, it took six months on June 4th of that. So I left on January 1st and on June 4th, uh, incorporated 3Com Corporation. Um, it took me that long to figure out what kind of company. And 3Com is the company I started. And 3Com is short for computer communication compatibility. The idea of the company was that we would connect computers compatibly using industry standards. At the time, every computer manufacturer had their own networking architecture. IBM had one called Systems Network Architecture, and Digital Equipment Corporation had DECnet, and Wang Laboratories had WangNet, and Hewlett, I forget the name of Hewlett Packard's network, but I'm sure they had one too. But the, game, the name of 3Com, our aim as a company was to uh, connect them all together, provide the technical, the product, technical products that would connect them all together according to internet standards. So we chose Unix as our standard. We chose TCP IP, the internet protocols as our standard. And of course we chose ethernet as our standards. And then uh, the we, those were three good bets, it turned out. Uh, they all panned out. And so the company went public in uh, 84. So founded 79, public 84. And uh, it peaked. Uh, this company, 3Com, peaked in 1999 with $5.7 billion a year in revenue. And a market, this is, this is also a little funny. The market cap for 3Com Corporation 
for a fleeting moment in 1999, inflation adjusted is $52 billion. So that, that idea of connecting computers together really blossomed. And now uh, in 2010, uh, 3Com was pr uh, bought by Hewlett Packard, HP. It's now part of HP Enterprise. And HP Enterprise is moving to Texas. They're moving, I think they're moving to Houston. So you know, the way I think about it is my company, which is in the inside of HP Enterprise, is about to move to Houston, which is, uh, I'm probably the only person in the world who thinks of it that way, but I do. Okay, um, I had another question because you said before that you wish you were better at selling Ethernet and your technology. Um, but I mean, from your example, it sounds like you did that pretty well. So I'm kind of wondering what you meant by that. Well, I learned, I think selling is extremely important to entrepreneurship. In fact, selling is very important to life. It's, it's uh, there are many forms of selling. Um, and I didn't learn it soon enough. So, for example, I had an opportunity to sell IBM, then the dominant monopoly in computing, on using Ethernet, and I botched it. I didn't convince them to choose Ethernet. So it took me 20 years to kill the IBM uh, token ring, which was the alternative to Ethernet. Uh, had I been a better salesperson, I would have killed it <laughs> before it got started by selling, effectively selling Ethernet to IBM. But I didn't understand selling in those days. But I quickly, at 3Com, I became head of sales and marketing uh, when the company had zero revenue. So I took us from zero revenue to a million a month as VP sales and marketing. Uh, and I learned how to, so I learned how to sell during that period. And I, I consider myself an expert in selling now, although there are, men, there are people who are much better than I. But you never want anyone to say that you're good at selling. Because I mean, <laughs> That's not the goal. The goal is not for you to be a good salesperson. The goal is for you to sell your products. So the uh, so don't aspire to be the world's best salesperson who can sell ice cubes to Eskimos. Uh, don't be kind of salesperson because that implies that your products are inferior, and and people only buy them because you're a good salesperson. You never want that reputation. You mentioned earlier you gave your resignation uh, letter seven months early and you still at that point didn't really have a, a plan for what 3Com was eventually going to become. How important do you think that was in uh, kind of forcing your and to, you know, think of the, and for like up and coming newers, do you think that's kind of an important thing to just like make kind of force yourself into that entrepreneur role? Well, there are many, Many the trouble with entrepreneurship is it has so many variations. There are so many different fields of entrepreneurship, and there's so many different stages of entrepreneurship. So there's a two by two, by two matrix of complexity. So it's very hard to give advice. So jumping off the diving board, which is what I did—that is, I left Xerox without a company in mind—is one method. The other method is to moonlight and work on your startup while you're a while you have a job. Another method is to work on your startup while you're a student. And uh, um, so like the, the Google guys were grad students at Stanford when they came up with Google. Uh, so, the, so there's many, many uh, variations. Of course, jumping off the diving board is, 
put some urgency in the matter. It turned out I had won a lawsuit. Some, I, I bought a house in San Francisco at, while I was working at Xerox. And by the way, the house was, cost about $100,000. You can't go near a house in San Francisco for $100,000 these days. You get a box for So I bought this house. But while I was away on vacation, the guy who sold me the house sold it to someone else. So I came back and that he had reneged. So I sued him. And it took me uh, several years. And I won the lawsuit. And I netted. I didn't get the house. I just netted $27,000. So when I left Xerox in January of 79, my net worth was $27,000 in cash in the bank. And the clock was ticking. So uh, I immediately started consulting as a revenue. So the, the start, I had started three previous start, uh, consulting companies, so I knew how to do that. So I started, a consulting, I started consulting myself, and there were about there were about a dozen of us before we began thinking about raising venture capital. Uh, the triggering event was uh, we decided that DEC, which was the largest, com- second largest computer company in the world then, and Intel, a brand new Intel, uh, semiconductor company, and Xerox, the big office products company, would band together. I, I, I married them to uh, propose uh, Ethernet as a standard. We called it the DIX, DEC Intel Xerox, the DIX standard. And we needed a standards body. So we found the IEEE and we convinced the IEEE to create a project called Project 802, whose uh, purpose was to standardize Ethernet. And then in September of 1980, DEC, Intel and Xerox submitted a spec to Project 802 for standardization. And that is on September 30th of 1980, I had my business plan ready for my company. So by then, I had decided what 3Com would do. And and by the way, this business plan, which uh, raised $1.1 million eventually, uh, you can have a copy if you'd like. I think it's floating around the internet. I have one on my disk. Uh, I'm happy to share it. It's hilarious. It's very funny as a business plan. Uh, I, uh, it it was like a deck. You know what a deck is, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, I was on the board of the company that developed PowerPoint. And we sold it to Microsoft in 1987, $14 million. My deck was 1980. So there was no PowerPoint. So it was a spiral bound uh, eight and a half by 11 document that I would sit down side by side with the venture capitalist and thumb through the pages of my deck uh, in this uh, spiral bound business plan. And it was my practice. Every time I presented that plan, uh, I would change it. That is, I would pay attention to the reaction of my audience and then figure out how to improve the deck each time. So every presentation of the 3Com business plan was diff- slightly different from the predecessor. I think that's very good practice, by the way, to uh, improve your presentations as you make them. But it wasn't with PowerPoint. It was with, uh, and if you really had a big audience in those days, you would actually take photographs of the pages of your document and project them with a 35 millimeter slide projector. 
So all of us entrepreneurs had a slide projector and a carousel full of 35 millimeter slides that we used to present our decks. So 3Com um, then transitioned from a consulting company into a product company. Our big finance, and this is a somewhat generalizable approach, is we found a customer who wanted our products. And they wanted them so badly, they were willing to pay us to develop them. Now, this customer was Exxon. And Exxon paid us $750,000 to develop four products, an Ethernet transceiver, two Ethernet uh, adapter cards for mini computers, and a, uh, a Unix version of the TCP IP protocols. So we developed those four products and we sold them to Exxon for $750,000, which paid the bills for quite a while. But we arranged that those four products remained our property. That is what we sold to Exxon, uh, and they were perfectly happy to do it, was a fully paid, worldwide, non-exclusive license to our products, but we retained ownership. So as soon as, the, as soon as we could, we then turned to the VC community and said, we've got these four products working now. We've, we have already sold them at least once to Exxon. We now think the world should buy them, and you should fund the growth of our company. So we raised... Uh, in early 1980, we sold a third of the company for $1.1 million. All these numbers are tiny compared to today's transactions. So in, in 19, starting in 1980, we raised a third of, a third of the company went for $1.1 million. And then a year later, we doubled the value of the company and we raised $2.2 million. And then a year later, we doubled the value of the company again and raised $4.4 million. And then a Another year later, we went public and raised $11 million. Uh, $11 million. Today, $11 million is barely the legal fees for a public offering. But we, raised, we were profitable. We weren't a unicorn because we were profitable when we went public. So we, we, um, we were valued about $100 million uh, when we went public in 1984. That is just an insane amount to think about, especially in 1984 with inflation that, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, so, oh yeah, go ahead, Gavin. So it seems like you like consulting and giving advice and obviously teaching are part of that. Um, I'm curious as to uh, why Gavin, you're- Gavin, having some mic problems. Gavin, you there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? We'll hear you a little bit. Decepticon type voice going. In the meantime, uh, I have another question. You mentioned, obviously, Silicon Valley and Steve Jobs earlier. Uh, I was wondering, what was your relationship like with Steve Jobs? Well, in June of 79, the week after I founded 3Com, I had rented an apartment in Boston where I was consulting. I was sitting alone one night, feeling sorry for myself uh, in this apartment on the dining room table. And this phone rang and the phone was sitting on the dining room table. Of course, like all telephones in those days, there was a wire that ran from the telephone over to the wall where it got plugged in. So I picked up the phone and it was a guy named Steve calling from a company named Apple in a city called Cupertino. 
And I'd never heard of Apple. I'd never heard of Steve. And I even had never heard of Cupertino, which is strange since I lived in Palo Alto. And Steve had had a, a company called Apple that made what he called personal computers. And it had been founded in 76. And this is 79. And he had heard that I was a networking expert and he wondered if I would be interested in talking to him about networking his apples. So I, I was then commuting between Palo Alto and Boston. I had an apartment in each city. So I was going to be on the West Coast the next week. So I made an appointment to meet Steve in Cupertino at a hippie restaurant on Stevens Creek Boulevard that you know sold organic food. And he and I sat and ate really healthy organic food. And he pitched me on becoming his networking guy. But I had just founded 3Com, and I pitched him on a scheme for networking apples. And being an engineer, I decided to call this project Orchard. That was my idea of marketing. See, connect, connect apples together. Ah, that would be an orchard. See, Steve, get it? Well, Steve didn't get it. Uh, he he uh, wanted to recruit me instead, but he understood immediately that I had started my own company. So then he did something very un-Steve-like. You know, Steve has a reputation for being a very nasty person sometimes. He wasn't nasty with me. In fact, he did, he's then started helping me start 3Com. So he introduced me to his PR agency and he uh, introduced me to certain customers. And so through the early 80s, Steve, uh, oh, he introduced me to my investors uh, uh, who were uh, scattered through Silicon Valley. His investors were all CEOs of Silicon Valley companies and they became my investors to an angel group. So he, he, Steve, was very helpful. He attended, uh, he came to our wedding. My wife and I got married in February 1980, which reminds me our anniversary is coming up uh, on February 2nd. Steve came to our wedding in Woodside, California that year in 1980. And you know what the problem is with Steve Jobs coming to your wedding? Nobody remembers anything about our wedding except the fact that Steve Jobs was there. And it was, <laughs> he, he, he was a major, major charisma kind of guy. But he was very helpful to me and bought some of our products. We sold some products to Apple. They, were, they didn't do well. Oh, and Steve didn't like Ethernet. It was too expensive. So he, he recruited one of the guys who worked for me at Xerox, Bob Belleville. And uh, Bill be uh, Bob became the engineering manager on the Macintosh. And the, uh, he devised a thing called Apple Talk, which was a 250 kilobit per second Ethernet-ish kind of network to connect apples to their uh, laser printers and so on. So it, I didn't get Steve on the Ethernet until his next, when he came up with the computer for next, it had Ethernet. <clears throat> and then when he rejoined Apple, he took Ethernet with him. And so finally, after years and years and years, we got it, Ethernet into the into the Macintosh. So uh, I, I'm a big fan of Steve Jobs, even, even though he was now and then an asshole. Sounds like an incredible relationship. Gavin, do you have your uh, mic working? Can you hear me again? No. Ooh. Hello? Go ahead. Ask a question. <laughs> um, can, you, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. So you said that Part of your mission is to help Austin be a better Silicon Valley. 
Is that something against Silicon Valley, or you just want Austin to kind of take that role? Well, I think of the, the, my words were carefully crafted. Yeah. My goal was to make Austin a better Silicon Valley, which is not to say better than Silicon Valley. Right. So I'm a huge fan of Silicon Valley style innovation, and particularly startups and that kind of innovation. And uh, and so I want uh, being in Austin. I'm working to have Austin be a better Silicon Valley, better than it is now. And of course. The last 10 years have gone really well in that regard. In the last 10 years, uh, Austin's entrepreneurial culture has been booming, and it's been fun to be there. It's always So look how lucky I am. I managed to go to Boston during the, the heyday of Route 128, then I managed to be in Silicon Valley during the heyday of the personal computer revolution <coughs> and the Internet, and now I'm in Austin and have been for 10 years during a boom time in Austin uh, for entrepreneurship. So I'm a really lucky guy. I seem to be uh, in the right city at the right time. Follows you around. Let me know if you move somewhere else. I might need to move there too. <laughs> Maybe Marfa's next. Now, by the way, uh, a lot of people in Austin don't like it when I say I want, I, I want to help Silicon Valley, uh, help Austin be a better Silicon Valley. They cling to the slogan, keep Austin weird. And I do not subscribe to that slogan. Uh, I prefer keep Austin wired, which is a slight anagram uh, for weird. Uh, keep Austin wired. The people who want to keep Austin weird, are I don't think that's a good goal. Uh, I, by the way, I'd like to warn people in Austin, if you... Don't enter a weirdness contest against San Francisco. You will, lo <laughs> you will lose. You don't stand much weirder than Austin and always will be, uh, uh, especially San Francisco proper. Uh, Silicon Valley really isn't San Francisco. It's really Santa Clara uh, down south. But uh, <coughs> anyway, keep Austin wired. Uh, and keep it the live music capital of the world, but please don't keep it weird. I don't think that's a good goal. Yeah, I think uh, I don't think we stand a chance against San Francisco either, and for good for good reason too. <laughs> you can be as weird as you want in San Francisco or in Austin, but it's no way to run a city. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously you've done a lot with venture capital, especially in more recent years. Um, and I was wondering, um, especially with kind of the wealth that you were able to accumulate through 3Com and some of your other endeavors, do you have like a philosophy on wealth in terms of obviously you're doing a lot of investing? What Do you have like a personal philosophy there? Well, I don't invest anymore. Venture capital has three phases. There's the phase where the VC partnership forms and it raises money for its funds. That's phase one. Phase two is the VCs then take that money and invest it in startups. And, and then phase three is the startups pay off and the money comes back and gets distributed to the investors. So I'm in phase three. I'm in the distribution phase of venture capital uh, and have been for 10 years. I had another That's reason. Phase. 
<clears throat> well, it's a pretty nice phase if you if you have a successful partnership, which I luckily did. Uh, oh, where was I going with that? Um, I forgot. I forgot. What was your question again? So, just a, a personal philosophy on wealth. Oh, um, it's good. It's I've been poor and I've been rich. It's better to be rich. And then what you do with that is is up to you. It's nobody else's business. And uh, my particular focus in philanthropy has been endowing professorships at MIT. So I am currently endowing my third professorship at MIT. The first one was in writing. The second one was in the World Wide Web. And, and until recently, Tim Berners-Lee was, was the uh, 3Com professor. And I'm now uh, doing entrepreneurship in the Sloan School there. And I'm calling that the Ethernet Inventors Chair. So that's my particular use of wealth is endowing those chairs because I think highly of higher education and of the work that professors do. And so I've made that the focus um, of my uh, disposing of my wealth. Um, I'm, I'm uh, sort of happy about who turned out to be the richest people in the world. Uh, the, if you had to have a richest person in the world, Bill Gates is a really good choice. Uh, uh, Elon Musk is a really good choice. Uh, Jeff Bezos is a I know these guys. They're all really good choices. So uh, we haven't had monsters become the richest uh, guy or gal in the world. So that's worked out pretty well, I think. I'd absolutely agree with that. Probably helps that one of them is also kind of my boss. So, who's which one? Elon. Um, I, I internet SpaceX. Oh, cool. Well, lucky you. Very. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so tell me, would you please, what's the latest with the Hyperloop and what are you all doing? And why, why are you talking to me about this? Gavin, do you want to take that? So, yeah, um, it's been kind of hard just being online. We haven't had to, we haven't gotten access to our workspace. Um, but we're just kind of in research mode um, and finding different places to explore. And the industry as a whole, Virgin Hyperloop just completed like the first human test so they put a couple people in a pod and ran it at like 50 miles an hour so that's like the latest development hyperloop um and they're probably the main people in the industry pushing it forward version hyperloop do you still have your track out pickle yep we have our testing track and we have a, we have one complete pod and, and almost another one and uh, last time i checked the the most novel thing about your approach was the air bearings as opposed to the magnetic, uh, the maglev suspension. Correct. Yeah. It's still what sets us apart. Yeah. And now since we're on the topic, how does your project become a startup? That's a good question. We've actually, I remember, I think a couple of years ago, we had some people reach out to us. Uh, I think specifically about creating like, um, uh, small-scale tests at, in China, I believe. Um, there are some investors interested in that. Um, in terms of taking it as a startup, some of the original founders had kind of tried to go that path, 
didn't have a lot of success with it. Um, and well, just they were because their team, your team through the Longhorn startup program that mm -hmm. Josh and I, uh, were, uh, are running or were running at the time. Uh, but we had a hard time figuring out what the product would be and what the customer, who the customers would be. Yeah, I think I think what they ended up with was the product was going to be essentially a prepackaged pneumatic system for the air bearings, if I remember correctly, and trying to get a partnership uh, with Airfloat going on that. Um, but as I remember, um, it just they had trouble off the ground. Um, obviously, Vic ended up going to uh, MIT for his PhD, um, and a couple other uh, people just kind of branched off from there. So I wasn't personally a part of that actual push for the startup, but I know that that's kind of how things ended up. Well, as Hyperloop, you know, grows, if it does, it, it'll create a huge ecosystem of companies and uh, many companies playing different focused roles. So I guess it's a search for what's the appropriate role for your team. Is that right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think right now what we're interested in mainly is just one kind of developing the students at UT, giving opportunities there to just learn and grow um, as just individual engineers. And then two is just to kind of advance the research aspect of Hyperloop um, and just continue to prove different feasibility specifically with air bearings um, and their practicality at high speeds. You're also a, re a recruiting arm of SpaceX. In a way, yes. So how many UT students now work at SpaceX? Um, that's a good question. When I was there last summer, me and my roommate were the only UT interns um, at headquarters. So I know, I think there's a couple in Boca Chica and probably a few in McGregor as well, just because obviously it helps being closer here in Texas. Um, but I think even in the in next year's, 2021 intern summer class, I saw a couple other UT students as well. So I'd say there's definitely, there's, there's a good growing alumni group there. Yeah, well, you should turn the tables on SpaceX. If the, They may view your project as a recruiting arm of SpaceX, but you should view it, you should view your project as a way of getting people to work at SpaceX, because that's a great way to, well, fabulous company. And it's also a way to learn how to be in a startup. Absolutely, yeah, that's, yeah. That's kind of our focus is like trying to give students professional experience while they're still at school so they're ready to go into the, that workforce. Yeah, I generally, uh, you haven't asked, but I generally don't recommend that graduate students uh, leave the university to start companies. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, people tend to teach what went well. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't start my company until eight years after my PhD, so... Uh, so that's a different track than, say, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Michael Dell, all of whom dropped out of undergraduate school, or Mark Zuckerberg or, uh, or so on. I'm more on the Elon Musk school. I have accumulated lots of uh, degrees along the way. Uh, but I do recommend that undergraduate work at startups because it's a great way to prepare. To, because to start a company, you need to know something. And, and you need to know it at a, a level of... Uh, Malcolm uh, Gladwell estimated you need 10,000 hours of experience in your technical field in order to start something. Uh, 
And uh, so a good way to do that is to get, I, I went to Xerox and did my 10,000 hours at the Xerox Research Center. Uh, uh, SpaceX would be a great place to do uh, uh, your 10,000 hours. Yep. Yeah, I, it's a great company. <laughs> we're actually going to be talking to the CEO of Virgin Hyperloop in a couple of weeks. So we'll be able to ask him all about where he sees the industry going. So that'll be really cool. Right. Well, it's a very exciting project. Uh, so I'm currently in Marfa, but when, when can I see another run of your pod? Just let us know when you're in town. Once, once this COVID is over. Yeah. Look at, test, look at the test running. You have it running now except for COVID. Right. We have our old pod still running. We've, we've designed an entirely new pod. Um, that was kind of our, our push for the fall. Uh, so we have all new designs. Um, kind of a, a new uh, version of the pod that we hope to make eventually. Currently, we still don't have access to any of our research uh, spaces on campus, though. So we can't really start our manufacturing phase quite yet, sadly. Hmm. That's because the university won't let you on campus? Won't less. Hmm, that's too bad. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. That's maybe been one of our big struggles. Maybe yeah. COVID will be over soon. Yep. Hopefully. All right. Are there any other uh, topics we can undertake or before we go back to work? Yeah. Um, I think one last good question, uh, and it's kind of a very broad one, so you might have a good answer in mind and you might not have anything in mind for it. But I guess, um, you know, what's next for Bob Metcalf? Uh, or if you have any upcoming predictions of things that you – currently are seeing trending uh, in the world, whether that be, you know, cryptocurrency or, you know, just something random out there that you think uh, you have another prediction on. Right. Well, the, the disruption of education is proceeding apace, thanks to COVID. Uh, so Zoom and all the variations of Zoom is enormous opportunity for innovation in this let's call it the Zoomish space, the uh, online education, online work. Um, so there are many, many opportunities in there to advance. Zoom, the current version of Zoom, which is pretty cool, is uh, going to change completely in you know the next few years. Uh, so there'll be many competitors. So it's an area that's very hot. The area that I'm focused on next, I'm still, uh, I'm starting a new course tomorrow on uh, a signature, a UT Austin signature course on startup innovation. But my um, uh, other job is I'm a principal investigator of Texas Geo. And you should read about it at texasgeo.org. And we've been uh, asked by the Department of Energy to create a startup ecosystem for advancing geothermal energy. That is, instead of burning hydrocarbons to create heat, Let's just mine the heat right out of the center of the earth or toward the center of the earth. So the, the earth is hot inside. We just have to go down and we estimate 10 kilometers would do it. If we could just learn to economically drill to 10 kilometers and achieve temperatures of say 350 C, we could then derive all of our energy without burning any hydrocarbons, without burning anything. We'd use that heat to create electricity or use that heat directly to do chemical processing or heating and cooling of buildings. So the idea is to take the oil and, 
we have two secret weapons. And by the way, these ideas were ha uh, packaged for me by uh, our fearless leader, Jamie Beard, who's a lawyer, who is the executive director of TexasGeo.org. One idea she had <clears throat> was to use startups to advance geothermal. Geothermal has been limping along for a long, too long, and it's time for it to blossom, and startups are a way to light a fire under it. The other idea is not to consider the oil and gas industry as the enemy. So the hippies running the geothermal industry, uh, that was a joke, the hippies running the geothermal industry hate the oil and gas people. But the oil and gas people are the ones who know how to do geothermal. They know how to drill. They know how to deal with thermodynamics and uh, scale. So my, to go to your back to your question, the next thing for me is I, uh, for one year now, I've been working on Texas Geo. I have another year to go on that under the current contract. We'll be stimulating startups that in some way or another advance the ability, uh, our ability to harvest heat from the earth and convert it to energy and thereby um, save the world by stopping global warming and and uh, and so on, and this geothermal is ready to be commercialized and scaled up. We, we Jamie and I figure we have about nine years to go before it's at scale. We have to learn how to drill deeper, uh, more economically, and convert that uh, and bring that heat to the surface and convert it to uh, useful energy. And it'll take about. It's a little bit like building the internet. It'll be built by startups in partnership with the incumbents the oil and gas industry. So that's, uh, how's that? How do I do answering your question? That's perfect. Oh, yeah. That sounds really exciting. I'm going to be interested to see how that, how that turns out. Yeah. I got to look for that. You know, maybe, that. Drill, maybe if we learn how to drill really well, we can do uh, hyperloops through our, through our tunnel. We, we thought of using the boring company to help us to bore. Yeah. Call them up, but they tend to stay shallow and go horizontal, and we need to go vertical and deep. Uh, I'm not sure that's the same technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're coming to Austin, so who knows? Yeah, I was about to say, talking of Austin, Silicon Valley, I think Boring Company just moved here. So, Boring mm -hmm. moved Austin? Yep. How come mm -hmm. I don't know that? <laughs> We're here to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Do you have the press release? Was there a press release or did they just secretly move here? It's very secret. They've been posting um, like job applications and I think Elon like might have tweeted it or something. It's very unofficial right now, but it's happening. Can, can you send me some evidence like Elon's tweet or something like that? Because then I will tweet it. Okay, I don't, for sure. I don't tweet anymore. I will, <laughs> link, I will link in it. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I'll find that for sure. That would be great if you would. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think KXAN covered it. Uh, Elon Musk Boring Company hiring in Austin. But does that mean they're moving here? Whether or not that means headquarters is here, I guess, is still up to debate. But we know that they're at least starting uh, a big location here. And we know that Elon has moved to Texas, so that's consistent. Elon's in Austin, yeah. Yeah. So big, big things moving to Austin. Yep. Well, we're in, we're in Marfa. It's about six hours away. And um, as soon as our house is finished, we'll, <laughs> we'll be back in Austin too. Actually, we don't live in Austin. We live in greater Austin, in Westlake. We have a view of Austin. It's the best of both worlds. To Westlake, y'all just won uh, the state championship. 
We did. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah, the Westlake is a factory for quarterbacks. And so maybe, yeah. anyway, yes, Westlake, we live in Westlake. We're now the state football champions. Way to go. Hmm. Well, I have a little bit of beef with that because they beat my alma mater, um, Southlake. So that was tough. Yeah, but Southlake's a really good team. That's true. I played they, there back in it, the day. So. You played football? Yep, at Southlake. What position? Safety. Whoa, cool. I'm a tight end. You played? Yeah, I played uh, Menlo Park adult flag football for three years. In the first year in the C League, second year in the B League, third year in the A League. And I was an eligible guard, which is like tight end uh, in seven-man flag. But I'm a huge football fan uh, as a result of those three years. <laughs> Essentially yep. the prototype for Rob Gronkowski, right? Yes, I am. I have, I have his eyes and speed and hands, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I put on a lot of weight in order to attract the attention of the football coach. The MIT did not have football when I attended. There. They do now. Yeah. So I still, I still have four years of NCAA eligibility. It's so never I'm, too late. It's okay. never too so I put on a lot of weight toward the football season, hoping that the coach will notice. But uh, so far. But now we have a new coach. So maybe, maybe my opportunity will um, develop. By the way, I can only be tight end on the left side. Because I, I, I find it easier to catch over here than I do to catch over here. Got to play to your strengths. Right. So the well, left my friends, position I'm after. Well, my friends is, is uh, the punter at MIT. I'll see if he can put a good word in for you. Uh, the punter at MIT. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hook them horns. And I'd love to see MIT and, and uh, Texas play football against each other. That'd be great. Yeah. If you care about MIT, I don't think you'd want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, the I think Texas has about a hundred pounds on e weight over each uh, per MIT. player. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think one I'm day rowing the Patty eventually. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate Bob, it. It was an absolute pleasure. And as soon yeah. as I get back. I'm going to, and pickle opens up. I want to get out there and see the pod, the new pod. <laughs> <laughs>